in today's subject is also fascinating, uh, and that is Bible criticism. Uh, and that is obviously, as we may or may not be aware, that is the uh, a, a application of scientific method to determine, A, the proper content of the Torah, uh, the Bible, uh, and B, authorship. And this has uh, been a, a recent, relatively recent field, starting in the mid-1700s uh, uh, um, till present day. Uh, and it has presented unique challenges to what the Jews have traditionally believed. Um, and I want to start with that because um, it's a little bit of a misconception in the secular world or in the academic world as to what Jews, and for that matter Christians, have traditionally believed. If you look at the very first line, and though I just pulled this from Wikipedia, the very first line of Wikipedia about the documentary hypothesis, and that's the name we'll hear about, the documentary hypothesis is the most widely accepted uh, theory of Bible criticism. The first line is as follows, quote, the traditional view that Moses was the author of the Torah came under increasing and detailed scrutiny in the 17th century. Um, and thus, they're presenting that the traditional view was that Moshe is the author. Moses is the author, single author, and comes along Bible criticism, and they challenge that premise. Is it one author? Is it two authors? Is it five authors? Is it ten authors? Was it all put together by some redactor, some editor? When was it written? Was it written at one time? Was it written over 400, 500 years? That is what Bible criticism came to contend with. Um, uh, if you've read, perhaps you've seen, uh, you know, maybe the most popular book on the subject, a fellow by the name of Richard Elliott Friedman wrote a book called Who Wrote the Bible? Uh, wherein he is working under the premise that Moshe is the author according to tradition. In truth, the tradition has always claimed that Moshe is not the author. Moshe is the typist. He's the scribe. He's the stenographer. He writes down what God dictates to him. And this is a critical point. And in fact, if you look at the Talmud, which is written 2,000 years ago, and thus can justly be considered the traditional Jewish perspective, the Talmud says in the book of Sanhedrin, page 90, 90a that is, in the bottom, uh, that there are certain people whose beliefs are in such direct contrast to, to Torah, to Judaism, that they cut themselves off from the Jewish people. And it gives a whole long list of the heathens and the heretics and the people that have all these beliefs that are antithetical to Judaism. And one of them is someone who questions the divinity of the Torah. Ha'omer, right, that the Torah is not Meneshemai, the Torah is not from heaven. And the Talmud goes on to explain what does that mean. So it gives a whole long list of people that are included in this category. Um, it says, even if he says that the entire Torah is divine, except for one verse. It means if someone says, hey, I believe all the Torah is divine, but there's one verse in Deuteronomy or one verse in Leviticus or Exodus or Genesis, whatever, that that was not written by the Holy One, blessed is he. Rather, Moses said it himself, that too is included under the category of people that lose that portion of the world to come, that are carved from the Jewish people because they reject the central premise of Judaism that the Torah is divine. So what the Talmud is telling us, that not only is Moshe not the author from traditional perspective, but if you ascribe one verse in the Torah out of the 5,845 verses, one of them you say, this is not God, this is Moshe himself, then you are rejecting what the traditional perspective has been. So ironically, the very starting point of 
a lot of Bible criticism is that the traditional uh, viewpoint is that Moshe is the author, and they want to contest that, that point is actually untrue. It's, it's a misconception. It's not true. Traditionally, we believe that God's the author. Moshe is the stenographer. Moshe writes down what God dictates to him. And that's a crucial point. We'll revisit that again and again. Now, uh, on, uh, on that point, it's interesting. There is a question as to the authorship or, or as to the um, writing down of the last eight verses of the Torah. Um, because if you read the end of Deuteronomy, the Deut- Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moshe. And it describes the death of Moshe. Moshe and Moses are the same character, obviously. Uh, so Moshe is, is about to die, and he's prepared to die. And then eight verses to the end, Moshe dies, and the Torah gives a little eulogy of Moshe. You know, his great accomplishments, and what he taught us, and what he gave us, and what he, all the miracles that were done via him. Could that have been written by Moshe? Sure. Well, could it or could it not? So that's an interesting question. Tom addresses that question. And it has a whole debate. So one opinion says, wait a minute. Moshe describes his death, right? So how could Moshe be writing it right before him? Well, so that's, well, that's, but if he's a prophet, he could write what, the, you know, once we accept the premise that Moshe wrote the whole thing with God telling him what to do, clearly he has the capacity to communicate with God. If he has the capacity to communicate with God, God tells him, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future. Write it down now. Go ahead. Moshe to write down. Moshe, how he's going to die, and he wrote it down. Right. So the Talmud has two, two opinions. One opinion says that Joshua wrote it, and one opinion says that Moshe wrote it with tears. And the obviously simple understanding of that is that Moshe is being told about his own demise, and that's, of course, very unsettling for someone. And he has to write his own obituary. That's, you know, that's obviously... So he wrote it with tears. It's a simple understanding. There's other, other interpretations about, about that. But either way, the only verses that traditionally have been ascribed to anyone other than Moshe writing it is the last eight verses. That being said, even those last eight verses, and even the rest of the Torah, the actual author who's determining what word goes in, what word goes out, that's God. give you guys an example. If you buy any book in the store, do you assume that the person who wrote the book, who's the author of the book, actually typed it out? Maybe yes, maybe no. Who knows, right? But the point is, is that we don't look at the typist, at the stenographer, as they're the author of the work. You know, if if the, the Talmud is telling us here that if that if you say that Moshe does not have editorial control over even one sentence, it's insane to say that Moshe is the author. So that's I think the starting point, and I think that once we have this perspective of the traditional uh, viewpoint as to the authorship of the Torah. Uh, that presents the whole discussion of Bible criticism in a different light. Uh, obviously, it does raise other questions. Um, how would God write a book? How would a book authored by a divine entity that's not bound by time and space, the definition that Jews have given to God, how, how would that work? That would be very, a very interesting analysis. Like Once you accept the premise of God as the author, Moshe merely the typist, well, that is a very interesting analysis to say, okay, how would this book be written if it wasn't authored by a human? It means we have to kind of change the frame of reference. It means if we want to kind of analyze a book and try to question the authorship 
and then we say, hey, it's either this guy or that guy or this guy or five other people, you know, that is kind of one frame of reference as opposed to if we say, is it a human or is it God? That's an entirely different equation. And that we'll try to get to that in, 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 in a little bit. Uh, I want to just stress this point uh, a little bit further. Uh, Maimonides, once again, are, you know, we could make the very good argument that he did more than anyone else to codify what the traditional perspective of Judaism has been. He writes in one of his 13 principles that God's the author. Moshe, Moshe wrote it all down. That's part of it. Moshe is the, the conduit, the, the prophet, who writes it all down, every, 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 every word. He obviously goes with the opinion of the Talmud that Moshe wrote even the last eight verses. But God's the author, and, and, and if you question that, you are going against one of the 13 principles of faith. Okay, so that was the, that was the um, perspective. Now, there has been some revisionist history uh, about certain Jewish commentators, uh, most notably Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, one of the great medieval commentators in the Torah. Uh, there have been allegations that he, too, questioned the veracity of the Torah. Uh, for example, there are many times where he writes, as you could read a line, I wouldn't get to, to bog down the details, but there are certain instances where he writes that uh, this verse or these verses is a secret. He gives this kind of mysterious, kind of dodgy uh, um, analysis of a problem. And there have those that kind of, uh, there are, have those that have said, or made the argument that Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, the great commentator uh, um, on the Torah, is essentially intimating that Moshe is not the author. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, there are other cases where he writes, quote, these are the words of Moshe, Ela divre Moshe. But if you actually analyze that, what he's actually saying is that he's referring to a narration in the, in the middle of a dialogue. So for example, if you have one verse, one sentence, and it talks about what someone says, and then in the middle of the sentence, it meanders into a, di- into a narration. So it's the third person talking. So what he says, these are the words of Moshe, i.e. not the words of Jacob or of Abraham that begin the sentence. But uh, no way does that imply that Moshe is A, the author, or you know, B, he has any oversight on the actual content. Rather, these are the words of the narr- narrator, and he calls it Moshe, i.e. The, uh, the third person perspective. Um, we could, you know, we could kind of dive into this. It's it's very, uh, it's very textual, uh, but it's very, very different. I mean, the, the the claim that the traditional scholars, most notably the Ibn Ezra, was of the belief that the Torah was not what it claims to be, is very dubious. It's very dubious. But it has been written in some books, as uh, Richard Elliot Freeman writes it. He kind of takes it as as for granted when it's not absolutely clear. At all. Okay, so that's the basic attitude that has been um, uh, prevalent in the Jewish and certainly as well the Christian uh, community uh, for time immemorial. In the 17th century, this idea of using scientific methodology to examine, to critically examine the Torah uh, was developed. Uh, there's, you know, we could talk about who the forebearer is, most of, but we have someone like Baruch Benedict Spinoza. Uh, who is um, often painted as the father of, of, of criticism, Bible criticism. Uh, but the idea uh, gets developed uh, over some time to actually question what we have traditionally been, uh, uh, accepted. Now, it's important to note, and we're going to stress this as well, 
that when we say science, everyone gets steered to. So you don't want to argue with science, right? We don't want to be the people that are the, the Luddites, so to speak, that rejects a flat earth society people. Um, it's important to realize that this uh, is a very soft science. It's kind of like archaeology. There's a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of malleability in the evidence, and the evidence doesn't necessarily say what it is, you know, it is portrayed to have said. Uh, you know, if you find something uh, in a certain strata, uh, you know, you find a t- little pottery shard, you know, for us, uh, it's, it's, it's immaterial. For an archaeologist, they can write a whole book about it, right? Because there's a lot that can, a lot of conjecture that can be taken very far uh, with very, very little actual substantial evidence. Uh, and Bible criticism is the same way. Um, and what's clear is that there's nothing firm. You know, we don't look at, traditionally, we don't look at the Torah uh, critically as a proof for the divinity of the Torah. And uh, the argument uh, as well that the Torah, uh, if the literally, li- literary, literary analysis of the Torah categorically disproves the divinity of the Torah is also hogwash. It means we can't take uh, uh, radical steps either way, yes? When you say Bible criticism, you mean textual criticism? Right, so we've got the two, two, two kinds of Bible criticism. So, the Bible criticism separates it into two uh, forms. There's what's called lower Bible criticism, which is essentially the finding the correct text of the Torah, uh, trying to find, making slight amendations within the, within the actual text. It's not about the analysis of the authorship of the text. That, that, that's known as higher Bible criticism. And what's interesting is that lower Bible criticism. Um, which is actual analysis of the text, not to try to prove or disprove authorship, but just to try to find the true text, that has been present for a long, long time before the 17th century. You know, we go back to the, to, you know, to the Masoretes of the 7th and 8th and 9th century that spent a lot of time trying to find the correct text. And it was interesting that... Well, well, the actual text of the Torah, we have 304,805 letters in the Torah, right? They're all copied by hand. We don't have the ability to print them, right? Mass publication, mass dissemination of written documents comes much later. So we have Torah scrolls that have to be 100% accurate. If you have a Torah scroll that's missing a letter, has one, two letters touching, one letter chipped, uh, has a mistake in the letter, is missing one of the letters, like, that could happen, right, out of 304,000-plus letters. And over the course of time, you have one Torah scroll, you copy another Torah scroll, who knows how far away the actual text is from the original. So lower criticism is the pursuit of the correct text the way it was originally. Um, it has not been proven. Oh, yes. Yeah, so interestingly, we have, it has been proven. Uh, we have, in 1947, the most significant historical, uh, the uh, archaeological discovery of all time, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, in southern Israel, in a very dry place, uh, they found in the caves uh, uh, extant texts right, of all of the books of the Bible. Uh, and they found um, things that were preserved because of the climate for thousands of years. Uh, the actual dates, there's some that say it's 2,200 years old, some that say it's 2,300 years old. But either way, we have existing texts today, you could doodle them online, that are exact copies of the Torahs that we read in today's rules. So just to be clear, it, it, we don't have the full Torah, we have sections. Well, w- well, we, 
Yes, I just want to make sure I understand. That's true. But whatever we have uh, matches. Uh, and there are some books that, they're, that, that they're, were more prevalent than others. Like, for example, the book of Isaiah was super popular. Um, you know, the people that were uh, the dead, what's known as the Dead Sea sect, most likely they're, they're the Essenes. We know this today as the Essenes. Uh, they were people that had a kind of a twist on Judaism that was very apocalyptic. Uh, therefore, they went to live in caves, and most likely they were celibate, which is obviously not a way to guarantee perpetuity. <laughs> Um, they were celibate and living in caves and the end is near and if you are into that kind of stuff the book of Isaiah will be very popular so they found many 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 copies of Isaiah but they found copies of everyone now um, I don't know if they found everything was complete because if you look at the scroll there's obviously holes and patches uh, within it uh, but they found almost everything not only that we look at the Cairo Geniza Cairo Geniza was another greatest uh, archaeological uh, discovery uh, uh, of text um, that they found in Cairo, and they found an unimaginable amount of documents, and we compare them to today's. Well, now, granted, that's only a thousand years old, but we compare that to today's documents, and they're identical. Now, I say they're identical. That's actually not entirely true. They're almost identical. They're, the 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 margin of error of all the existing Torah scrolls is nine letters. That's I it. It was just one that was found in Ethiopia. Well, so the so the thing is like this. First of all, those letters, none of those letters change the meaning of the word. Now, you say, wait a minute, Rabbi, how's it possible to have an extra letter or missing a letter and have it not change the word? The answer is, chaserot and yeteot, which means, in Hebrew, Hebrew is a unique kind of alphabet wherein the vowels are frequently in the form of nikudot. Nikudot, those little dots and right lines and dashes under and above the letters. Now, in the Torah, sometimes the vowels are put in the form of letters. Sometimes they're not put in the, in the form of letters. And therefore, all the nine letters, all the discrepancies that we have in all the Torahs are either examples where, the, uh, where, where we have, for example, we have the vowel and they don't have the vowel, or they have the vowel and we don't have the vowel. So there's not a single word that's missing or added you know, between the Torahs. Um, so that kind of makes you know, the discovery of, of ancient books that verify that our Torahs are accurate that uh, kind of makes uh, the um, scientific methods of lower criticism really uh, uh, moot. We don't, we don't really need that. It was interesting, as a side point, I'll get to a second, Sharon, um, uh, that the tefillah, the prayer, was never written down. Prayer was almost always um, uh, was, was, it was memorized. Uh, and the reason for that probably is because to write something down, uh, you wouldn't do it unless you had to read it. Uh, so if you just memorize it, it's much simpler. Everything, everything by hand, and it was, you know, it was very... Uh, laborious, very expensive to write things down. But because it wasn't written down, it wasn't read, and it wasn't, you know, we didn't have the same precision that we have in copying Torah scrolls, therefore we have uh, regional differences in prayers. You know, if you look at the Sephardic prayer book and the Ashkenazic prayer book, they're different. And the reason is because, yeah, that's what happens. If you have a, uh, a body of text that hasn't been written down, hasn't pres- been preserved with the absolute highest regard of, for accuracy over the years, it's going to get distorted. That's just the reality, Sharon. Okay, my question was the, uh, the Greek. Version. The Septuagint? Yeah. Yeah, so the Septuagint. Um, there are some discrepancies with that. Yes. So the Septuagint is um, the first translation of the Torah about the year 245 before the Common Era. Uh, Ptolemy II, um, the Greek uh, um, uh, emperor at the time, he commissioned which is a nice way of saying he forced uh, a group of 70 rabbis to translate the Torah into Greek. 
and we still have that today. So it's interesting that any analysis we have of the Torah, we know it's been in foreign hands, foreign but non-Jewish hands, which is a little bit of an outside verification for, uh, for about 22 and a half hundred years. Uh, now, there are discrepancies between that and the Torah. In fact, the Talmud even talks about how they deliberately changed, they made 36 emendations to the Torah because they didn't translate well. So the Torah in its original Hebrew, Hebrew is a very malleable language. So one word can have multiple meanings. And there's a lot of nuance that's baked into the Torah. You translate that to Greek, and then you lose a lot of that. And therefore, a lot of that subtleties that cannot be translated to other languages had to be amended to prevent misinterpretation. So I'm not experts. I'm not an expert in all the different uh, okay. uh, discrepancies that, 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 that they that made. There was actually more in the Greek version. Than yeah, that's that's po- yeah. Even well, they they or they tweaked it. I mean, they tweaked it in several places. Well, and, and the legend was that all seventy um, scribes. Uh, that's right. So the Talmud says that all seventy scribes were able to. All their ma- they all matched. They all matched, even though they were secluded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. That's interesting. Um, Okay, so that's lower, lower criticism. So really, I think today, when we talk about Bible criticism, it's going to be higher Bible criticism because that hasn't been uh, settled, at least from the academic community, even though it's changed a lot. Well, the authorship, the authorship. And it's important to realize, we'll have to always remember this, that the starting point for a secular academic is going to be human authorship. And the question is, which human? Was it Moses? Was it Ezra? Was it Jeremiah? Was it just a collaboration of a bunch of rabbis? Was it one guy? Was it three guys? Over hundreds of years? Over one time? That's going to be the starting point. It's a human author. And we uh, traditionally have had a a different starting point, and that, I think, is going to be very insightful in our understanding of the traditional response uh, to to this. Now, so what they do, so they examine the style of writing, uh, they examine vocabulary, you know, to see if there's consistency. Uh, They did Literally, tech, literary and textual analysis, primarily, you know, one of the big, big uh, points of, uh, of Bible criticism is the various names of God. So if you look at the Torah, you read the Torah, there's many names that, we, that are given to the divine entity we call God. Uh, there's a name that has four letters, what's known as the tetragram, which is the name that we can't say, that uh, is, uh, uh, starts with a J or a Y. Um, uh, there's the name of Elohim. Uh, there's other names that aren't even mentioned, like Shakai. Or it's, we, we don't say the names out. Uh, we don't say the names explicitly as we need to. Um, but there's multiple names for God in the Torah, and that made people question. Wait a minute. Why would you give a single entity multiple names? If what you names give, don't we say? Huh? Well, we don't say any of the names. I'm just kidding. Well, we don't say we don't say them because actually one of the Ten Commandments is not to say God's name in vain. So, so, so you know, so we don't we don't say them. Uh, we could reference, reference them, you know, kind of give um, yeah, euphemisms to them. I'll call them by other names. Uh, but the question was raised, wait a minute. If, why, why are there multiple names? Why, if, you're, if you're referencing the same entity, which is what we have believed, why would you call him or it by different names? It's a different aspect of God. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's an answer. Right? But, the, but the question kind of was raised. Um, and that's, and I want to make this point clear a little bit later, the question is not the problem. You know, but the, the analysis, the uh, questioning of the text is what we've been doing for a long time. The academics questioning it and them jumping to 
uh, conclusions that are not uh, that you know a lot of conjecture baked, baked into that. That is what we are, uh, you know. That's what's that's what's the surface. Now, so there's names of gods. Uh, there's apparently inconsistencies. Uh, there's contradictions. Things are repeated. There's doublets and triplets and redundancies, and themes which are anachronistic, which means that they're not uh, uh, up to the time. So, you know, if you talk about a helicopter in the 14th century, that's anachronistic, right? There's no helicopters then. Um, uh, retelling of certain uh, of certain episodes, right? How many times was Adam created? If you read Genesis very critically, you'll notice that Adam's actually created twice. Uh, if you look at the story of Sarah being taken by a foreign king uh, as a hostage or as a, uh, a sex slave or, 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 or whatnot, like, that's told twice. Now, granted, it's two different kings. It's possible it's two separate episodes, you know, but that made people question, made the academics question, is this the same episode? It was just retold twice, and then morphed uh, or edited together by a, another entity. Um, over the years, uh, the theory developed, and there was a conclusion that the only way to reconcile the material uh, was if they were authored by multiple people who were writing down maybe the same tradition or same legend or same folklore or same tale, fairy tale, if you will, and uh, you have these multiple documents... Therefore, there's multiple names because this guy gave the name that begins with J and this one gave the name that begins with E. And then another guy um, blended them all together, stitched them all up, and then was present, we presented that as a Torah. And that's the book we have today. Uh, that is the premise that emerged that the five books of Moshe uh, were actually not written by Moshe, all of them. Uh, maybe Moshe was one of the people involved. Maybe yes, maybe no. That's a debate. Uh, but were multiple authors... Uh, who lived over hundreds of years? That became uh, came a little bit later, but that um, the person who put it all together fell by the name of a German, uh, a German academic by the name of Julius Wellhausen, and he kind of organized it in the way that uh, kind of put all the elements of the theory together. What became known as the documentary hypothesis emerged. We have the book today, but really it is a composite work, composite work multiple authors over hundreds of years. Put together primarily, we have the E document, so that's the document that has the name of Elohim. We have the J document, which is the name of the four letter name of God. We have the D document, which is Deuteronomy, which they say came later, which is very interesting. Why did they say they came, they came later? Uh, and we have the L document or the priestly code Leviticus, which came much earlier. And then we have the fourth, fifth guy, which is R, which is the redactor who put it all together and organized it and edited it and made it all nice and neat and gave us, uh, gave us the Torah. Now, the actual aspects of the theory, uh, the you know, particular aspects have been debated and developed over the years. In fact, there were other books that were added, other alleged sources to the book. We have uh, the C document, the K document, the S, the PG, not the, not the uh, movie rating, but the, the P, lowercase g, the P1, the P2, and I, I, I noted while, while researching this, it, it looks like, if you look at the, at the Torah, in the light of Bible criticism, it looks like a bowl of alphabet soup. You know, so, like... So it's not just the four basic... Well, uh, over the... There's, there's more categories. Well, that's the argument, you know. And, like, and like, it looks like that's what you have. It's a bowl of alphabet soup. Um, a bowl of alphabet cereal. Uh, and not the word of a living God. Well, there's a lot of books. There's a lot of books written. Um, I, I, I say if you want to read about this theory, um, um, uh, Richard Elliott Freeman does 
a good job for a layman. Now, I want to mention, uh, when I read his book, I disagree with almost every single word. Um, literally. And there's almost nothing I can agree, just as a starting point, you know? Uh, like I said, his starting point is Moshe's the author. If Moshe's the author, why would a human write in certain things? He doesn't ever entertain the idea of a divine author. So, go ahead. I think this is appropriate time to answer questions. Go ahead, always. So as you were talking about with the names, God is inevitable. We don't, every time we try to define God, we have by definition, that's a non-God. We cannot. Well, so, so, but, so it's but, interesting, but go ahead. That's the case, I'm sorry. Go ahead. To interrupt you, sir. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, and these other scientific descriptions don't necessarily contradict that. Why do we look at it as a as an either or thing? It could very well be God does things that we don't understand all the time. So these folks uh, were, were driven by God to write this thing and scribe it. Mm -hmm. I don't see a contradiction there. Necessarily. Okay. Okay. So 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 um, your idea I like a lot uh, to try to not necessarily present everything in opposition. Uh, I think that in the Christian world, for example, in the other area of conflict between religion and, and science, there's always been this pitting of religion versus science. When in Judaism, we look at science as God's handiwork, right? That's the way God made the world. And that, why would that be in opposition to the existence of God? It doesn't, it doesn't, it means God created the world. Okay. Do we know which method he used? Well, we have 31 verses in Genesis. Is that an exhaustive detailing of Genesis? Clearly not. No one would make that argument, right? Is it possible that God employed evolution to do it? Why not? Is it possible that God employed a being bane? Why not? So I think in that, in most areas, I, we like to find harmony between science and, and Torah, science and religion, science and God, and that's you know that's always going to be preferable because we really don't disagree. You know, the source and the process are different. That's number one. Here, what science is making a claim, and, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit, a little bit in, in a little bit, that and it's not science. I don't want to call it science because it's not, it's not quite, you know. But the scientific uh, perspective, as employed by the Bible critics, has been to negate the divinity of the Torah and negate the um, uh, cohesiveness of the Torah. Now, if the Torah was a book. A composite book of multiple authors put together by humans without prophecy, well, then what value does it have for us? What lasting value should it have for us? Yeah, it may be a wonderful document, but is it absolutely true or not? Well, if it's a book written by man, well, then it may have been a very intelligent man, may have been one of the greatest law systemizers and, and, and moral codifiers that the world's ever seen. Fantastic. But if we have a different moral, if we have a different code, if we want to disagree with that human, we, we can. The, the, what gives the Torah its value and its lasting value is the fact that we claim that it comes from God. If it comes from God, well, then it's not up to debate. We, we, we can't argue with God. We don't have the capacity to say, well, I disagree. We can't take, cut out little sections that we don't like. We can't add or subtract. Right? There's, there's no amendments to the Torah if it's divine. However, if it was written by man, even if it was a great man, a successful man, or a people, or women, or whoever, if it's of human authorship, then it's very much up for our 
um, you know, it's our, it's our choice if we want to accept it, reject it, add it, subtract it, ignore it. You know, it doesn't really hold, uh, you know, the lasting uh, quality that the Torah has always been. So I find no place here for harmony. These, these are in opposition. Now, um, does this sufficiently answer your question? It certainly does. Thank you. Yes. Um, now, I want to make, make another point here. Now, I, I don't want to go all apocalyptic uh, on, on, on Bible criticism because I think, and I mentioned this point earlier, I think there's a lot of value here. Uh, if you go to a yeshiva and you see people studying Torah, you know, the, you know in, in the most... Uh, what you would say is, is almost violent way. Like they're, they're screaming at each other, arguing this argumentation. And why? Because they're arguing over text. So it may be the Torah text, maybe Mishnah text, maybe Talmud text, it may be text of, of, of later scholars. But the idea of critically analyzing the text, that has been the modus operandi of the Jewish learning for time immemorial. We find the Talmud. Talmud says that the proper way to study is two people, even a teacher and a student, and even the father and a son, that when they get to the, to, to, the, to, the, to the Torah, they argue it out. And they argue with such tenacity, with such ferociousness, that they start hating each other. Start hating each other. That's what it says. But then, once they finish studying, they love each other again. And we still have this today. If you go to yeshiva in Israel, you walk in, you feel like you, you well, we're walking into a mental institution. You just see a thousand young students screaming at each other. What's going on over here? The answer is they're trying to pursue the truth. And they're pursuing the truth via analysis of text. So analysis of text, critique of text, noticing problems, noticing patterns, asking questions. Why are things said this way? Why are they not said that way? Asking questions about redundancies and uh, contradictions. That is what we've been doing for time immemorial. So the, the, the idea of asking questions is something that we very much embrace. Yes? What this gentleman was saying, where... where this whole, it's always amazed me where science and the Torah, uh, make a long story short, where, where do the dinosaurs and all the, all the other things that we know scientifically happen, where does it happen within the seven days of creation? Yeah, so, um, so there's two, there's two jo- I don't want to you know, go too deep into this, but there's two general approaches to that question. One approach is the idea of using Einstein's theory of relativity that the six days are actually billions of years. To us, they may look like, uh, like billions of years, but at the time, there were six, six days. Uh, I can tell you some articles on that. Very fascinating stuff. Um, actually, Einstein made it very easy for us to find compatibility with either 15.4, now it's 13.8 billion years. That's one uh, position. Uh, there's another position that looks at uh, uh, events like the flood to have been so catastrophic uh, for the world that has you know, artificially aged, so to speak, fossils and caused so much chaos in the strata that makes it look to us like they're so, you know, 65 million years old when in fact they're a couple of thousand years old. Those are the two primary approaches to that question as to the existence of dinosaurs, right? Uh, the, the Torah says that many animals became extinct at the time. Uh, it does talk about taninim gedolim, these large, uh, taninim is like a, a snakes or um, uh, um, um, lizards of sorts. It, it does talk about in the Torah, and there are those that have theorized that that's referring to dinosaurs. I don't know. But either way, it has been discussed, and there has been an, an attempt to try to find uh, compatibility between, uh, between those. Like, like I said, like I said that, 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 that's one element of, of, of a big picture. There's many books written on this, on this subject. So Bible criticism in itself, that is something we embrace. Like I said, you go to yeshiva, you'll see 
Bible criticism, people asking questions, people legitimately trying to find the truth in the text. Like, that is the problem. Now, I, with a slight caveat, I would say that some of the Bible critics, maybe the tone that they use is a little bit different. There is a little bit of a, a cynical tone in some of these books uh, where they look at traditionalists um, as being a little bit arcane, a little, little bit, little bit backwater, a little, bit, you know, a little bit kind of clinging onto ancient myths as being truth. So, beside, but you know, there is a little bit of that, which I, I think is um, a problematic. But the actual idea of trying to use sophisticated methods of analysis and questioning. Uh, the, the text is something that we very much embrace. Now, the problem is not the question, the problem is, is the conclusions. Um, and uh, to your point, Daniel, th- what are the implications of taking the Torah and downgrading it from being a divine document from God directly to Moshe? This, these are the absolute words of God. Taking that and changing it to human authors. What changes? What now must result uh, if that were to be true. So like we said earlier, number one, it repudiates our religion. Right? The religion that we and our forebearers and all of our ancestry, all the way back to Sinai, back to Abraham, we're about 100 generations, they have steadfastly adhered to this religion and they believe that it's true. Uh, now, we, when we choose or we choose to question the legitimacy, the veracity, the historicity of the Torah we're essentially putting into doubt the existence of our religion. Our religion is predicated on the fact that this Torah is what it claims to be. If the Torah is a fraud, if the Torah is a hoax, then our religion likewise is a fraud and a hoax. And what does that imply about all of our ancestors? All of our ancestors that believed in it, and many of them gave up their lives to uphold the Torah. There's been millions of Jews, and I guarantee you everyone in this room has an ancestor that unfortunately was, uh, uh, you know, was uh, the sufferer of anti-Semitism, and many of them were killed for what they believed. So Jews have always took the Torah very, very seriously because they believed that it was true. If we want to question that, we have to realize the gravity of that conclusion. That takes what preceded us and invalidates it. And dare I say, what's crueler? To kill someone for what they believe or to make their death meaningless? In Judaism, we have always looked at the martyrs as the greatest heroes. Someone like Rabbi Akiva uh, in the year 135, where the Romans uh, made a rule against Torah study, against circumcision, against observance of the Shabbat, and Rabbi Kiva said, I'm teaching Torah defiantly. And they said, okay. And they captured him, put him in prison. Eventually, they said, we're going to kill you in the most horrible, gruesome, horrific way. And they flayed his skin. Like, but someone like that is forever etched in the Jewish consciousness. He's a great hero. And what happens when we say he gave his life for nothing? But he's only one example. We have example, modern-day examples. Someone like Nathan Sharansky, who did 120 days as in a hunger strike, you imagine 120 days in the gulag in a hunger strike. Every two days, the Soviets would come and push a pipe down his, down his esophagus and pour this protein mix to keep him alive. 120 days, why? For Judaism. 
because he wanted to go to Israel and he wanted to, you know, bring hope to the millions of Jews behind the Iron Curtain. All that for nothing? I think there's an element of cruelty to the conclusion that, uh, that the Torah is not divine because once that goes, our religion goes as well. So we have to be very careful with our conclusions and I'm not trying to say that that alone proves one thing or the other, but it's very important for us to not be lackadaisical, be flippant about this because we have to really be sure we know what we're getting into if we're coming to such a conclusion. Uh, that, that's number one. Now, uh, over the years, there have been many uh, classical analyses of the fundamental flaws of Bible criticisms. Um, I want to talk about those a little bit, also talk about some other insights that maybe are not mentioned as much um, in, in the classical response. We have someone like Rabbi David Zvi Hoffman. He was a, a German rabbi and scholar. He was one of those great German scholars of the 19th century that managed to do everything you know, was a professor of history and philosophy, and right, and still wrote a hundred books. You know, and and was and his approach uh, was detailed, uh, painstaking, systematically, verse by verse, word by word, arguing with the Bible critics. Uh, and there is merit to that. I think it's probably very boring for a lot of people to argue, but every verse and, and going going verse by verse, sentence by sentence, partial by partial, and painstakingly proving. Uh, or disproving the claims that and the allegations of the Bible. That's one approach. I think there are other approaches today. Uh, recent archaeological discoveries. We mentioned the the uh, uh, the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There have been many other discoveries uh, that have called um, or that have disproven the alleged claims of anachronism of the early Bible critics. Um, so, uh, like we mentioned, an anachronism is where something is not properly dated. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, the philosophical elements of the early Bible critics was that, that, that uh, early religion couldn't have been as organized as it is portrayed in the Torah. Um, so if you have someone like Abraham in the, I think it's called the early Middle Bronze era, where he describes kings and rulers and, 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 and roadways and uh, uh, organized laws... Like that kind of sophistication, organization that we have goes uh, uh, encounter to uh, to the kind of evolutionary model of history, wherein we have like kind of savages uh, or less sophisticated anarchy, and eventually becoming more and more and more civilized. Recently, there was an article I read that said there's an anachronism with uh, Abraham and camels. Oh yeah, I have it over here. How do you like that? I brought it here because this is a great example for my next point. <laughs> How do you like that? It's the New York Times. Yeah. Yes, uh, two, uh, almost exactly two years ago, February 10, 2014. I have a lot to say about this okay. article. Interesting. Um, now, uh, someone like uh, like William F. Albright, who is uh, someone who's used kind of archaeology to try to prove the Torah, but we don't do that. I, I don't think archaeology does goes either way. But he kind of he was he was very much a maximalist. He tried to use archaeology to prove the existence of the Bible. But he points out justly uh, that this evolutionary model of unsophisticated culture uh, and and government developing into sophisticated that is actually not true. In fact, the opposite is true in places like Egypt. Uh, ancient Egypt culture was very very organized, very structured. It made a lot of sense. You know, like they had a, you know, very very uh, uh, you know very sophisticated laws and culture, and that 
is not what is you know the the, the what's called the Hegelian method of of looking at the the philosophy of religion that couldn't have been that organized that uh, that long ago, and we see today uh, with archaeological discoveries that indeed that's actually not true. Um, so those have been uh, methods that other people talk about. There's a lot to read about there. I, I want to start with. Uh, what you mentioned, and I, I, I'm going to make this claim. Maybe you'll agree with me. Maybe you won't. And I think this article proves what I want to say. Uh, and I think, and maybe you'll see this as a cop out. But I, I think it's. I think it's a good argument to be made that there is going to be an inherent bias of the critics. Um, it's like we mentioned. The starting point has always been this human authorship. There's never been a Bible critic that has ever contested or has ever accepted the premise of divine authorship. But we have this article here. So what does this article say? This article, it was, it's the New York Times, right? Uh, the height of, uh, of journal, journalistic integrity, correct? So I have it over here. You can do the line. I disagree. I, I, disagree. I, I, was, I said that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, this is satirically, right? Uh, this article says that the caption here is, um, caption, the headline, Camels had no business in Genesis. Why? So this Israeli guy, shockingly, an Israeli would want to Proved this, right? Noam Mizrahi. They discovered, oh yeah, the first line is like this. Camels probably had little or no role in the lives of such early Jewish patriarchs as Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay? Uh, so we know, uh, if you read Genesis, there's certain several episodes where Abraham has camels, where Eliezer has camels, where Joseph has camels, domesticated camels. And uh, this is portrayed in this article as an anachronism because... Camels weren't domesticated 3,800 years ago. 1,800 years, 18th century BC, camels weren't domesticated. Why? Because they found archaeologists here, I'll give you a quote here, use radiocarbon dating to pinpoint the earliest known domesticated camels in Israel to the last third of the 10th century BC. Centuries after the patriarchs lived and decades after the kingdom of David, according to the Bible, which is actually not true because uh, uh, David in the Bible is about the 9th century. So he, he's actually early, uh, after that. So I don't know where they got that from. But either way, what's the claim? They have found some camel bones. They dated it. We are giving them the uh, benefit of the doubt that they're accurate with their dating. We're not questioning that. Even though that can be questioned, other people have questioned. We're not questioning it for our context. They dated camels domesticated camels, to 10th century B.C. That proves, in their eyes, that Abraham, who lives 800 years prior, could not possibly have had that. Now, there's a fundamental flaw in that argument. The mere fact that you find camel bones, domesticated camel bones, that are 3,000 years old, that doesn't prove that that was the first domesticated camel ever. It doesn't prove it at all. There's absolutely zero evidence. But this is presented as an anachronism. It's anachronism. The Torah is not true, according to them. The Torah must have been written later, and therefore people who wrote it later were using what they knew as, uh, you know, the modes of transportation, domesticated camels, or the modes of, 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 of um, you know, of, of animals that, that were commonly used. And they said, oh, Abraham must have had it because we made it up. And how do we prove that? That's anachronistic, because we found camel bones that are, that are 10th century B.C. And I, was like, I read this, and like my eyeballs are popping out almost. Like, how, how do you make such a claim? It's 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 negligent to make such a claim. It's journalism at practice. If, if I find, if I go to the library and say, "Hey, I want to find a New York Times article," you know, and I say, "Okay, I found one. It's from 1952, right? It talks about the huh? It's the first one. It must be the first one, right? <laughs> Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. 
right? To claim that uh, there's, there, was a, there was a New York Times article about Hitler. You guys who saw that? In 1919, where they put him in prison, and like it was a short article, like, and that's the last we'll be hearing of him. So that, that was like the point of the article. That must be anachronistic because I found a New York Times article in 1952, and therefore it couldn't have existed prior. So they don't, they don't pay very well to New York Times anymore. Huh? They don't pay very well to New York Times anymore. Well, I, I, to me, like, and, and, and how do you write that? It, the only way something like that gets through is if there's a bias. If anything that disproves the question of the Torah is rubber-stamped through. Because otherwise, it's journalistic malpractice. The claim is so absurd, and yet it's there and it's still online. I can't believe it's still online. It's so absurd. And something like that, to me, shows that the bar... The bar of of expectation of an argument for Bible criticism is very low, and someone who makes a claim like that is going to be allowed to be published, and it's still there two, two you know two years later. Not only that, we mentioned this prior. I think that there's always been a presupposition that prophecy is impossible. I'll give you guys some examples. So Deuteronomy is presented as being the latest of the books. Right? It's fifth century. Now, there's a few reasons why the Bible critics claim that Deuteronomy came much later. Number one is that Deuteronomy has different, um, slight variations in, in kind of the style of writing. Now, if I just told you that, you would say, oh, well, that's legitimate, right? Who here knows what the first 15 chapters of Deuteronomy discuss? Anyone knows? Previous entire Bible. Huh? Okay, well, not, not quite that. It's, it's not the entire... Well, it does mention parts of the... But the first, about 15 chapters, maybe even 20, it's, exactly. Well, I, there's a, a lot of it's Moses' speeches. It's Moses' last will and testament, basically. Right. The, the first two verses of, of Deuteronomy say, these are the words of Moshe, and it tells him where it was, and this is what he said. Now, does in, that mean it's not written divine, but that was written by Moses? Well, no. What it means is, is that this is the words of Moshe. Now, how do we view it? We view it traditionally, as God tells Moshe, write your speech. So Moshe writes his own speech. Now, God's still the author, it's just God's pulling a quote from Moshe, so to speak. Now, if I brought you a book... Are you saying that, God's that telling God, Moses to write your speech, but use my words? No. God's telling Moshe, I want you to write... God tells him, hey, I want you to write a conversation that happened with Abraham, right? It's just a dialogue of Abraham within God's story. So, so here, there's a huge the quote. Moses, I'm sorry? So Moses is, is not the author of his speech? Well, he, Moshe is the author of his speech, but that was his speech. Later on, God tells him, write your speech in the Torah. Does that make sense? No. I'll give you an example here. Let's say I have a book, right? I'm, I'm writing a book, and I want to pull a quote from some other author, right? I want to have a Mark Twain quote. Now, someone would examine my book and say, wait a minute, you look, you read the Mark Twain book, Twin quote, and you read what I wrote, and it's very different. It must be that this book has multiple authors. Now, obviously, the major hole in that argument is that, yes, it's my book, but I chose in my book to pull a quote from Mark Twain. So the fact that it's written in Mark Twain's words, and that's different than my words, doesn't disprove that I'm the author, obviously. Well, the wait, the author, there's your, 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 no. Go ahead. Tell me why not. Okay. Because, 
plagiarism says, if I'm attributing to Mark Twain, I cannot claim those to be my words. And the, but no one does claim those to be, to be God's words. God is pulling a quote from Moshe. So These are the God, words of Moshe. So now you're saying God is writing it down. Well, so no. God's the author. God's the author. God's but the author, it's not plagiarism because it says, if you read the first two verses of, of Deuteronomy, these are the words of Moshe. God's saying, Moses, this is a quote from Moshe. God's telling Moses, these are your words. Now, I'm reminding you what you said because you may forget. And write them down. No, write them down. Write them down in, for posterity in the Torah. But who created, but who created Moshe the Moshe gave a speech. So that's Moses' words. Moshe gave a speech. And God says, I want you to include your speech into my book. Right, but that's Moses' words in them. Oh, yeah, of course. But it's a quote of Moshe in God's book. That doesn't change the fact that it's God's book just because the words is different. Wrote those words, so that's well, Moses wrote the whole the thing, but he's not the author. He's the typist. But he's yeah. the author of his own words. True. Or is he true, only, true, is true, like true, a, true. Or is it something where you have like a seance and you only say what God... No, 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 no. It's simple. If I'm writing a book about the Civil War and I'm quoting Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right, I, that, wrote the, that, I wrote the book Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address, but I wrote the book, Thank and you. I'm putting down Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in the book. I'm the author of the book that's telling you what Lincoln said. And the fact that that may have stylistic differences between your words, that doesn't disprove anything. So Moses wrote like the speech. God is simply quoting him in the book that God that's is right. writing. No, Moses is writing it. Moses, Moses wrote the speech. Yeah, that's right. God is quoting Moses. So Moses is writing the speech. Why don't we, why don't we discuss this after the show? Okay, okay. Uh, so that's number one. And if you point to stylistic, of course there'll be stylistic differences. These are these words originated with Moshe, and therefore, of course, they'll be different. The words originated by God, of course. Now, not only that, if you look at Deuteronomy, there's going there's a lot of predictions. Now, if you presuppose that prophecy is not possible then essentially you're saying that predictions that indeed came true must have been written after those events actually happened. Thus, events that are described in Deuteronomy that came true with the destruction of the first temple must have been written after the first temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Thus, it's a circular argument. It's because we are presupposing that prophecy is not possible, therefore it must be that Deuteronomy came afterwards and that obviously is a weak argument. And now, uh, Isaiah, this is another great example. The Isaiah was always considered to be uh, the product of two authors for the same reason. Because the end of Isaiah makes, pro- makes, pro- makes predictions that came true in the Second Temple's destruction. It must be those written later. And actually, thanks once again to our discovery of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we find many, many extant copies of Isaiah, word for word with Isaiah we have today, that were, that were dated via scientific method to before those times we now know that it was that prophecy is possible and it indeed is the product of an individual guy and not later go ahead but doesn't the line that refer to things that have happened in the past like some of those past uh, events occurred over hundreds of years so Isaiah couldn't have lived that long well of course of course but if Isaiah is a prophet then the fact that it it happens years later or years prior. That's not an impediment. It means time is not going to be an impediment. Right. A prophet's able to see. It means the idea of prophecy is that they not only what they encounter with their own physical eyeballs 
is what they can see, so to speak. They're called seers as well because they are, have capacity to see things. But that's the idea of prophecy. Whether you accept it or not, that's what prophecy means. And, and therefore, the fact that he lived at a specific point in time does not limit him to only being able to write about things that existed at that time. Now, what is it? Go ahead. Just uh, without taking up a lot of time, God is the author of the Torah, and He's giving, uh, He's telling Moses what to write. Am I right so far? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. And the events that He's telling Moses, like Isaiah, is coming after Moses' death. Is that correct? Well, no. Moshe, Moshe writes only the five books of Moshe. Only. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, by the way, that, when is that written? That is written at the end of Moshe's life. It means Moshe writes it incrementally. He doesn't, write, he doesn't write it at Mount Sinai. He doesn't write the book of Numbers, of course, because that, those events hadn't happened. And if you're Korach, you wouldn't rebel against Moshe if you could read the book, right? <laughs> you know, uh, but, but Moshe writes it before, and the Torah actually does talk about, the book itself does talk about Moshe writing it and giving it to the Jewish people. And I want to make another point here. This is, I think, goes to the crux of the argument uh, that, like we said earlier, this is actually not a hard science. It's a very soft science, um, especially when we're dealing with, 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 with trying to uh, reverse engineer literature. Um, if you have a lawyer who writes a brief to be read by the judge or by the jury, and then you have that same guy who has a car double parked next to him, and they write him a little note on the guy's dashboard telling him what you think about him, if you compare those two documents, right, the, the, what he wrote as in, in, in a brief and what he wrote to the guy who double parked and blocked him out, do you think you would compare them and say this is the same guy or not? <laughs> Probably not, right? So context matters. And therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea in general uh, is, is very soft. It means the context will influence the writing style. Not only that, multiple names, right? Um, I, I know for myself, in any given week, I am called at least four things. You know, I go to the classes, people... Know that I know, right. <laughs> right. Not behind my back, who knows yeah. what else goes, right? You know, my kids call me Abba. Right, when... You know, when mail comes, it's Mr. It's Mr. Jeffrey, you know. And then people call me Yaakov. My wife called me Yaakov. My friends call me Yaakov. And people in the class call me Rabbi. Does that mean I'm a different person? Of course not. It means relationships matter, right? Your relationship you have with someone, that will influence the way you talk to them. Uh, and this is what we've always said, that when God treats us in a certain way, he's presented with one name. He treats us in a different way. He's presented with a different name. And by the way, if you look at Rashi, Rashi is, Rashi, remember, Rashi's in the, in the 11th century, right? 1040 to 1105. When, when he sees a name of God, Elohim, which is a reference to power, and by the way, the word Elohim does not necessarily mean God. I give you many examples of that. You look at someone like, uh, again, off topic here, of course, uh, but someone like the guy who wrote Da Vinci Code. What's his name? Dan Brown. He's like, hey, look at, look at Psalms 90, uh, 92. It says, you are the sons of Elohim, right? You are the sons of God. Well, what does that mean? It means you're the sons of God. Yeah, that sounds very Christian, right? The word Elohim means power. There is multiple times in the Torah the word Elohim is used to obviously talk about a man. For example, the court is called Elohim. Ad ha-Elohim yavod varshem. We read it in, two weeks ago in the Parsha. To the power they will bring their argument. Two people have an argument, they go to the court. 
Uh, Moshe is told that you will be an Elohim to Pharaoh. God tells Moshe, you will be a master over Pharaoh. And he uses the word Elohim. So the word Elohim, when we, we talk about God, it's a reference to God's power. And power and judgment is frequently is employed when God's being very strict, letter of the law with us. As opposed to the name, uh, the, the, the tetragram, the four-letter ineffable name of God, that's a reference to God's kindness. That's the name that God used to create the world, and therefore God created the world with kindness, and therefore when God's treating us with kindness, that's the name that's employed. And if you look at Rashi, every time it says one name or the other, they'll tell you, why is the tone here the tone of strictness or the tone of kindness? You know, so, and that's exactly a parallel to, to me being called different names, the relationship that influences the name. Um, the fact that the Torah is not chronological. Um, uh, even though this has really been discredited um, a long time ago, but there has been arguments in the past that talk about the fact that the Torah is not chronological. Uh, as, if, as if the editor or redactor made mistakes. We still see the, you know, the, the mistakes of the, of the editor. Uh, when so this doesn't match up with the holidays. Like we talked about Passover three weeks ago. Well, no, mostly in the narratives. In the narratives. Um, in the narratives, you'll, you'll have, say, you know, Abraham's father died. And then Abraham's 75 years old. But if you do the math, Abraham's actually much younger, much older when his father dies. Well, we have never claimed, and by the way, if you asked any fourth grader in any Jewish school in Israel, why is it what, that question? They'll say, Ein mukdam It's a line of the Talmud that's repeated, repeated multiple times. There's no prior or post in the Torah. The Torah is not chronological. The Torah finishes with one story, and it, kill, you know, it kills him off, so to speak, the character, right? Uh, Abraham, Abraham's father is killed, even though it happened much later, and we go back to Abraham's storyline, because we're not going back to that storyline. And I'll give you guys another example, and I think this is uh, enough evidence to dispel any myth that the Torah was ever intended to be uh, chronological, we have a story of Joseph. Joseph and his brothers, and he's sold, and it's a terrible thing, and he goes down to Egypt. Smash cut, Judah and Tamar. Judah, he gets married, he has three kids. His kids get married, his son, oldest son dies, his next son dies, he has t- Tamar's waiting for the third, third, everyone knows the story, this is, I think, Genesis 38 or 39. A whole story that obviously spanned multiple decades. Right? Judah has to get married, his kids have to get married, his kids have to die, he has to have this very bizarre interaction with his daughter-in-law. She dressed just dressed like a prostitute, and they produce twins, right? Very bizarre episode that intersects right in the storyline of Joseph. And it says, oh, and Joseph went down to Egypt. Did that all happen in the interim? No, clearly. Now, if you look at Rashi, Rashi asked the question. Like we said, asking the question is not the problem. Asking the question with intent to try to find what the message is, that's what we do. And Rashi explains, why is this Section just intersected in between of a much bigger section, and he and he answers the question, you know, but but the, you know, but this was once uh, uh, claimed uh, to have been um, a, a you know problem with the kind of the flow, the 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 continuity in the Torah. Now, another question. I think this is maybe um, just you know for us to just ask ourselves. Let's assume that the Bible curves are right. Let's assume for a second they're right. So we have a book, uh, we have traditions and folklore, etc., that are written down, there's multiple books written, and then we have the finalized book. And it gets delivered to us 4th, 5th century before the Common Era. At that time, historically, we know the Jews are already scattered. There's already a Jewish diaspora. So what you'll have to explain is how the Sarchot book 
get disseminated across the entire Jewish world. We have Jews living in North Africa, Jews living in Europe, Jews living, of course, already in Arabia, in Persia. How do you have the delivery of the book at a time where Jews are scattered everywhere? Interesting, right? Because if the book was only finalized then, it has to be delivered now to the people, because we do know the people already were steadfastly observing it only a couple of year, hundred years later. We know that it's already in the hands of the Gentiles, right? 2,200 years ago. So we have to find a way, and this is, you know, I think it's very hard for us to make this claim, that if the Torah was written so much later, finalized so much later, how does it get delivered and accepted uh, when the Jews are everywhere across the world? Not only that, what does the book say? The book multiple times talks about Moshe writing it and Moshe giving it to the people who experienced these, uh, uh, these um, tremendous miracles at Egypt, at Mount Sinai, the manna falling from heaven. And Moshe tells him, you guys saw the manna falling from heaven? This is the book I'm giving to you. Wait a minute, isn't that obviously disprove itself? Like, if the Torah is true, then it has to be that Moshe delivers the book to the very same people who ate the manna and who witnessed the Mount Sinai experience and who either them or their ancestors or their, their parents experienced the exodus from Egypt. Because that's what it says, that Moshe gives the book to the people at the end of Deuteronomy. If I'm 2,500 years ago delivering the book to you guys, I'm going across, I'm, I'm the traveling salesman, I travel everywhere, and I have to make independent speeches to all these people to convince them all simultaneously, but not in unity, that this is all true, and they just read the book and say, wait a minute, uh, Rabbi Walby, I have a problem. It says that not you gave it to us, but... Moshe, who is Moshe? And, and what are these episodes that happened? And how do I know that this is true? And, and, and how come no one has a record of this besides for you? Yes. I thought that he gave one book to each tribe. That's true. That's true. Yes. Moshe gave one book to each tribe. I know. I agree with that. But we're saying if we assume the Bible critics is true, let's actually play it out. Let's see what happens. What does that imply? And how does that get widely adopted by the people when they know for sure that it's false? And I, I think a good way for us uh, uh, to kind of analyze this question, and I think another spin I think that makes it uh, very interesting is to ask the question, is, okay, fine. Let's now entertain, let's entertain the possibility of God authoring a book. Yeah. Yeah. If God... <laughs> exactly, uh, which is not discussed. I mean, this option is not discussed in Bible in Bibleism. But let's ask ourselves some questions. If God wrote the book, would the book be written with the same format and same methodology as if a human wrote the book? It means what, what would be different? Better yet, what would the intention of the author be? It means it's kind of like a reverse engineered. Let's assume that God is the author. How would that be different? than if a human was the author. And by the way, if you play this out, you'll notice that once you accept the premise, or at least the possibility of divine authorship, if that's one of the options, all the questions get answered. Everything makes sense. And by the way, we actually have a way to do this. We have what's called the Oral Torah. Now, Oral Torah, uh, I know it raises uh, a lot of red flags in a lot of people's eyes. Oral Torah, what does that mean? Rabbinic law, all that. Let's put that aside. But the simplest understanding of what the Oral Torah does is it takes a book that is full of riddles and enigma and brings clarity to it. It's as if you have a book that's encrypted. It's written mysteriously, 
and then you paint the perspective of the oral Torah on top of that, and then it makes sense. So the book of the oral Torah, or the perspective of the oral Torah, is the decryption key to understand the written Torah. If you just had the written Torah, there's a lot of questions that are justly raised. If you actually look at the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Midrash, almost all these questions are actually answered. And they're actually addressed straight up. All of the textual problems are addressed. Not only that, there's something really cool here. Not only that, if you actually look at the perspective that we gain through the Oral Torah, we see not only answers to our questions, but we see insights that we can never have imagined uh, we would pick up on our own. For example, um, Jewish marriage, right? Presentation of the ring. That's what, ha- that, that's what makes a couple married. If you're married, it's because you gave an item of value, uh, uh, the, the man gave the item of value to, this, to the woman, and said a certain words, that creates marriage. That's what Talmud says very clear. Now, everything that's in the oral Torah must be somewhere encrypted in the written Torah. Okay? With the possible exceptions of about, with the about eight or nine things. Very, very short list. Maimonides makes a list of things that are called halakha lemosh misinai. These things were given just by tradition, like how much matzah you have to have, and volumes, etc. But besides for that, almost everything is actually in the Torah. Where in the Torah, I want to ask the biggest Bible expert here who hasn't learned Talmud, where in the Torah does it say that marriage happens by transference of something of value from a man to a woman? And you know what? I guarantee you, if we spend the rest of our lives perusing through the Torah, pouring over, analyzing, asking every question we could possibly ask, we probably won't find it. Maybe we will, maybe we won't, most likely we won't. That's true, but, but that's not, is, is, that, is, that the, is, that, is that what makes the marriage? Who's to say that that makes the marriage? Maybe when they met, they got married. So that's, you know, that, 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 that's, that's true, but that's actually not what, that, that, that wouldn't be sufficient. So what you find... Campbell, that really messed it up. wasn't there. No, the camel was there, it just wasn't domesticated. Well, actually, in the story of Rebecca, Rebecca fell off the camel. So maybe that actually does prove <laughs> they, weren't, they were more unwieldy than we would imagine. But either way, the Talmud says, and this is an example of hundreds of these, the Talmud says that if you look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, you'll find the words, yikach ish isha. When a man, yikach, remember the word, kach, man will take, will, will, will marry a woman. And then, all the way back in Genesis, with the story of Abraham buying a, uh, a burial plot for Sarah, hasade, right, nasati kesef hasade, the words, the Hebrew words are the same words, akach, yikach, the same word, to take. And there we know that Abraham bought it with 400 uh, silver, silver coins. We see money was used in that transaction. Says the oral Torah, this is how we know that marriage happens with money. How so? The same word in multiple places, they tell you that they are linked. That is a way to decrypt it. If you, if you read this a thousand times, you would have imagined that those two are related in any way. But that is how we can decrypt the oral Torah, uh, or the written Torah with oral Torah. And that tells you, hey, look, here it says, ki yi kach ish isha, man will marry a woman. Kach. Well, how does that happen? It doesn't tell us, right? Well, it does tell us. Because if you go all the way back, dial the dial back, all the way back to Genesis, right? Abraham's wife dies. He wants to buy a, a place to bury her. And he says the word, nasati kesev asada kach man, I gave money. Take it. There we know that money or something of value is transferable. 
And by the way, you say, oh, whoa, who, who, who wrote that? Which human author put all those little laws in it? Not only that, there's hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of examples in the Talmud of these laws being, 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 being deduced uh, in, in, this, in this methodology. Now, to me, this is remarkable because this raises the bar of genius of a human author to write such a thing. Like, how could a human do that? And there's, there's, I give you one example. There's hundreds of examples called Zerushavas. How could, it, if you read the oral Torah and you see how much that exposes of the wisdom of the written Torah, you really have to start questioning yourself. Okay, is it possible for a human to be this brilliant? Right. It makes it more difficult to, uh, you know, to imagine some redactor putting it all together and obviously leaving lots of mistakes because if we don't have the mistakes, we don't have the theory, right? If we don't have the mistakes of the redactor, we don't have the theory. On the other hand, we have such precision and such, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little, it's a little bit oxymoronic. On one hand, the theory of the documentary hypothesis is predicated on the fact that it was a sloppy job. Because otherwise, we wouldn't find so many instances of these, uh, you know, of, the, of these discrepancies. On the other hand, the only way for us to accept the Torah is if there's such tremendous genius that, and it's so organized and so orderly, which is obviously uh, a problem. Now, I want to say one more point before, before we finish and we have some time for, for questions. Um, two more points. The Constitution. So we just had the death of a Supreme Court justice, right? What's the Supreme Court doing? What's, what's their role? Their role is to interpret a written document. What's the problem? It's only, the document's only written 200 years. How, come, how is it possible that a document that's 200 years old, written by humans, with the intention that other humans down the line will understand it, will have so much debate and disagreement? The answer is that written documentation alone is not enough because it can be understood in a multitude of ways. It can be, uh, you know, there's inflection points, there's slight differences in use of, of grammar and use of words, and then there's some rooms for, room for ambiguity, you know? And then there's the obvious questions of, well, had they known how prevalent guns would be and how powerful they would be, maybe they wouldn't have it. Who knows, right? That's a debate that we have today. And we see an example of a document written by humans, very short document, written by humans with the explicit intention of it being understood in future generations, and we have no idea how to interpret it. And it's, you know, it's always 5-4, right? How, we clearly see that if a human writes a document, a very intelligent human writes a document with the intent of it being understood by other humans down the line, it most likely will fail. If God wrote the Torah, and God had the same intent for it to be written, to be understood by humans down the line, perhaps he would write it in a way that it will be able to withstand decades and millennia of time and still be understood. It means that th- maybe the reason why there's so many discrepancies is specifically because God is writing a book that's very different than the way a human would, 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 would write it. And thus, if we're assuming human authorship, and we're, we're, we're within that mode of, 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 of reference, and then we see things that a human would never write, a, 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 a fallible human would never write, if we question maybe an infallible God would write, maybe then that would shed light uh, uh, onto these apparent uh, discrepancies in the Torah. And lastly, I want to say this point uh, quickly, because I actually spent five lectures uh, on this particular point. So I'll try to condense it into maybe 20 seconds or something like that. If you actually look at the Torah, more specifically Deuteronomy, you find very pointed predictions. Predictions 
that fly in the face of reason and predictions that happened way before the events happened. We find multi-pronged predictions. For example, the idea of an eternal nation. The Jews will exist forever. Yet, they will be small in number. Yet, they will be scattered. They won't have their own homeland or, or language uh, or country or culture. They will have anti-Semitism and they will remain small in number and come back to Israel. I got to five predictions that all of them are in opposition to logic. An eternal nation, how does the nation stay eternal? Not by being small in number or by being hated or by, by being uh, disrupted multiple times or by being scattered. That doesn't happen. Yet all those are predicted in the Torah and all those we know are true. Not only that, going back to Israel. The Torah predicts we'll go back to Israel and now we know very much that that is indeed true as well. Uh, and the question we have to ask ourselves, okay, let's assume there's human authorship. How does this human gain insight? Or what gives him the gumption to make such a bold prediction? A prediction, by the way, that has never happened in human history, that a nation edges out from the land, come back to reestablish sovereignty. It's never happened. There's no, there's no other examples. Well, it's happened to us. That's right. I agree. <laughs> it's happened to us twice. But it hasn't happened. And the reason why is because these things don't happen. You have a nation that's scattered from the land, they disappear. And there's hundreds and hundreds of examples. History is littered with examples of nations, of people that were disrupted and sent away, and they're gone. And yet, we butt that trend, and it's predicted in the Torah. And not only that, all the themes, all the obstacles to us doing that are also predicted in the Torah. Let me ask you a question. Who wrote that? Well, if God wrote it, well, God can do that, right? If a human wrote it, even the most brilliant human in the world... They can't possibly make it. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't go on a limb to do something which is so, um, so unlikely to happen, and indeed we see it did happen. Either way, uh, in conclusion, um, I appreciate everyone, everyone coming here. This was a lot of fun. Um, uh, I encourage people to do take a, a closer, critical look at the Torah. That's what we have been doing uh, for, throughout the centuries. Um, and uh, to ask ourselves these important questions. There's a lot that's very interesting, very fascinating, and I think that uh, the resurgence of interest in the Torah is a very good thing. Uh, but let's be very careful with what conclusions we draw because it can be very dangerous and the gravity of a conclusion uh, that invalidates Judaism is, is very dangerous and we want to avoid it. Thank you so much. And I want, um, as well, if everyone could please...